In recent years, the potentials of smart technology have often been pushed as offering enormous benefits and opportunities for control of our lives. From running apps to smart fridges, the interconnectivity and data analysis that they can offer is promised to solve many of our daily stresses and increase our efficiency. But are there other things we need to consider than simply the dangers of information gathering and surveillance? How far do these technologies potentially shape us as individuals? What exactly is the idea of individuality in this context? Hello and welcome. I am John Lynch, Associate Professor at Karlstad University, Sweden. My guest on the podcast today is a social scientist who works on the connections between digital media, cultural studies and human geography. James Ash is Reader in Technology, Space and Society at Newcastle University and the author of The Interface Envelope, Gaming, Technology, Power, Phase Media, space-time and the politics of smart objects, and the edited collection Digital Geographies. Welcome James. Uh, I'd like to start with the idea of the digital turn in geography. Uh, what do you mean by this term? I wonder if the very foundations of geography through Western techniques such as mapping are in some ways not already digital. And if the digital becomes so ubiquitous, how do we maintain any kind of distance from it today? Mm, I think that's a really good, uh, important question you're raising there. I, I think partly it's a, it's a question of like discipline, disciplinary labels and labeling. Um, so, this idea of the of digitality or digital um, as a term has obviously been around for a long time as a way of describing particular types of uh, technology, often computational technology that that rely upon binary kind of operations. Although, like you say, a lot of analog machines also rely upon binary operations as well. Um, but I think really the question of digital geographies is the question of just bringing to the forefront as you say the ubiquity of these of these of, of digital technologies in in shaping all aspects of life around the world really um and the the paper which the idea of digital geographies comes out of is a paper that i wrote with my co-authors rob kitchen and agnieszka Kolazinski and Actually, the paper's kind of saying what you're saying, which is that that there isn't it there isn't a digital geography, but rather we should think about different geographies and the way in which digitality or digital technologies have transformed um, different different pre-existing geographies. So uh, I think it'd be more a question of you know how 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 can we think. The digital turn in relation to different subfields of geographical inquiry, you know, like uh, cultural geography, economic geography, uh, development geography, uh, and so on and so forth, rather than saying that there's some kind of um, umbrella term that should be placed above that called uh, digital geographies. So in that regard, then, is there a distinction between what you might call digital knowledge, the, the, the systems and machineries and technologies that we might use as a, as a way of investigation? Uh, but then I mean, human geography is, is interested in that notion of experience. I mean, is there a, a tension between those two sides of things in a way? I think it comes down to how you theorise um, or understand what digital means and how it relates to um, how you think about what humans are or if you can even think about the question of the, of the human um, I think I would I think there's lots of different ways of come at, coming at this issue, this problem um, I think I would come at it from broadly what you might call a kind of post-humanist perspective where the where to be human is to already be technical. Um, so you can't really separate out on a primary level uh, technology from humans. Humans have evolved with technology and those 
technologies uh, have shaped what humans are and, and what we can do. So you can't really think them as completely distinct or separate categories. Um, so, yeah, I th- I'd say digital technologies are part of a much longer story about how um, technologies act to exteriorize memory into the environment and uh, act as a kind of means of transmitting that memory across space and time. And I think with with digital technologies, it, you know, a lot of that exteriorization and transmission is a question of an increase in speed uh, and increasing the amount of information that can be transmitted and stored. And then what can be done with that information uh, in terms of analysis, uh, data capture, and so on. So there's a there's a sense then of of that idea from uh, Stiegler, for instance, of techniques and the, the the human in that sense. Is digital primarily an intensification, or is it qualitatively different? Do you think? Mm, I think this is a really, I think this is a really interesting question. Um, I think for Steve, for Stiegler, I think it's it's a I think it's a kind of it's it's an intensification, uh, which leads to all kinds of problems. So he's although he considers technology as a kind of uh, digital technology, especially as a kind of what he calls a pharmacon, both a poison and a cure. He very much focuses on what you might kind of call. <laughs> the negative aspects uh, of, of digital technology in terms of its ability to uh, kind of control human behaviour, uh, limit, be- limit human behaviour within particular kind of pathways that are laid down by governments and corporations um, which seek to exploit people and stupefy them. So he has, quite a, he has a very strong language on that. You know, he talks about stupef- stupefaction. Um, so I think he would see it as probably an intensification. I think for me, the question of, I don't know, digital as opposed to what? You know, digital as opposed to analog. Is there some difference in degree or kind between digital and analog technologies? To me, that's, a, that's less of an interesting question than just investigating particular technologies and the specificity of those technologies. That's... That's what really matters. That's where you see what things are doing and the effects they're having. Um, and I think there's a bit of a danger if you just if you just rely upon these big terms like digital as an analog or, and how digital is different from analog, you can cover over a lot of those uh, specific processes which are actually key to what any technology can do. Yeah, as you say, there is a there is uh, an awareness of of the sort of negative aspect. In the other direction, do you think the widespread access and deployment of digital tools allows for any kind of reconfiguration of the politics of geographical knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think the the obvious the obvious place to start is, and this is where people like uh, Virilio start, and this is where a lot of the critique of uh, digital technology and geography comes into play is that you know there's that the, these kinds of technologies are always linked to to war and the military you know and and, and kind of better ways of mapping um better ways of like understanding terrain you know it's all about ballistics and uh how you can use different uh ways to destroy things and destroy people so i, I think that there's often a strong link made between you know how technologies have evolved and, and developed through military needs or desires or military situations. Um, but beyond that, I think you know digital technologies have 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 a kind of intense ability to reorganise space and time in all kinds of ways, um, and that doesn't have to just be about destruction or mastery or control or domination. To, to, to my next point, really, then, um, I mean, this idea of regulation and control of space, um, which is now so important, 
Can smart technologies play a positive role in addressing the current coronavirus situation? Do the benefits outweigh the dangers? Because we seem to be at a very uh, unusual moment in the, uh, well, maybe it's not surprising given the, 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 the issues that, that we face individually and as societies, but uh, <laughs> this uh, Naomi Klein published recently uh, along sort of warning around this. Do you, what do you see? This is, this is a very real moment um, for us in terms of benefits and dangers. How, how do you see this mapping onto this at the moment? Mm. So I think the actual, it's, it's the logics. It's like what logic is at play when these technologies are developed and employed or what are the implicit logics at play? And I think the most dangerous implicit logic behind any kind of uh, technology right now, whether that it be smart, you know, or non-smart, is the, is is the reification of the individual and placing of the individual as the basic unit of social life. Um, and by individual, I mean indiv- individual human and humans as individual tools. And I'm not saying that humans aren't individuals. On one level, humans are individuals, but it's the rarefication of humans' individuality, which I think is a big, big problem because it creates a situation in which it's every person for themselves. You know, everyone has to take responsibility and control of their own actions and they are told that they have the good sense or the common sense to to make the right choices. Um, but then that means if they make the wrong choices, then it's their fault, whatever may happen. And I think that that's a huge problem. So if, if for say you have, you know, if everyone's told to download a new app to try and contain the coronavirus or allow tracking and tracing so they can follow up with people and um, kind of contain the spread in and of itself that that might raise some privacy issues but I think it's how how is it presented you know is this is this presented as a social good and is this is the app made is other technologies um, made to enable a social good you know where the social good is the the protection of the community, not just the uh, individual. I, I I think that for me is really important because that logic of the individual can become very um, it can become very isolating, and it, and it creates it creates um, communities which are very isolated from one another, and which is hard to find common ground. Then and I think that's a real problem. Um, I, I suppose I think you know what again what we have at this moment is uh, I mean we're certainly used as academics to levels of abstraction and thinking and that's important and necessary for reflection in all sorts of ways but um, there, there is a sense of crisis and I think you know it, it, again the sort of technological developments around military and war often it's 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 framed in that kind of way we may be moving towards for instance a situation of sort of health passports on our smartphones or some kind of smart technology and stuff where um uh, these things but there is there is a sense that at the moment people seem to be looking to the technologies to solve Problems. I mean, apart from issues to do with vaccine and pharmacology and things, that there is, there is the idea that um, uh, we can do certainly in the developed West, whatever uh, first world, um, we we can manage this more effectively when we can perhaps go back to work quicker and so on and so forth in a way we wouldn't in the past. So, uh, in that sense, is it? Is it even possible to separate out these things in that regard? I mean, there is a reification of the individual, but you know, we are in we are individual entities in terms of infection biologically. Uh, we're talking about uh, you know this 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 viral uh, experience. Um, how can we 
can we usefully separate those or, or are they just too intertwined at the moment, do you think? I think that's really interesting how you talk about the, the notion of like biologically we are individuals or in terms of the virus, you know, we talk about has the, how is the virus transmitted between individuals and does, it, does an individual have the virus having as a kind of holding or keeping or infected by um, I think that and this is a very basic point that society and this is just a basic actor network theory point society or the social or whatever you want to call it is always a, a, an assemblage of human and non-human things and you know, uh, transmission is always through some kind of medium, right? Um, transmission is always a matter of air or surface. We know that, you know, the coronavirus lives on different kinds of surface for different lengths of time. So I think for me, it's it's trying to ex- just expand that notion of, of the social beyond a, a collection of eyes, a collection of sovereign eyes, to think about how the virus lives within a society, if within is even the right word to use. And that we, yes, it can, as individual subjects, we can experience coronavirus and live or die, you know, and suffer all kinds of grave consequences of having it. But at the same time, it's like, how can we kind of try and retain that idea that to deal with it, it's not, it's not just a collection of eyes. There is no just there is no collection of eyes alone, um, and you know if we want to sort the transmission, we have to think about surfaces, materials, you know, um, air, wind, um, filtration, ventilation. These are all me- these are all technologies and mediums which are a key part of what what creates infection or what allows infection to spread or, or be transmitted. So for me, it's just trying to, just trying to think about the virus as, as not just something which humans catch, um, but that it's just, it's there, it's out there, you know. Uh, I find fascinating at the moment the differences between um, countries and systems. So, uh, uh, I have family in Ireland, which has, which is a bit much more closer to the UK in terms of a lockdown, very rigid and different things. And they're now moving towards a, a policy of everyone wearing face masks. Whereas in Sweden, the line literally from the government is, we don't want face masks, face masks create more problems. And it's interesting to see then how these the, the different countries that in one sense, you know, consider quite close in all sorts of ways, but have a very different view of, as you say, this kind of almost materiality. There's, it's like, well, what material are we going to put in front of our face? What in Sweden, it's like, well, you could put the, you can wear the face mask, but then there are these secondary things that you have to adjust the face mask much more. You take, touch your face much more often, therefore the risk giving. Fa- so there, it's very interesting to see this and and the and the move towards, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I have a, an elderly parent there, so it's this is very urgent kind of thing. She can't move around in in public without some screening of some kind, if that will even be possible. So, yeah, I think as you say, it, I think it operates at the most basic level of, of material, you know, to uh, a much more profound sense so you you mentioned that idea of logics then i'd like to go back then to uh your book in 2017 which was called phase media space time and the politics of smart objects so can you tell me a bit about what this is and what what is phase media yeah thanks um so actually i mean on one level the book was trying to develop a theory of what you might call smart objects or smart devices where a smart object or smart device on, on, a, on a simple technical level is an internet-connected, sensor-enabled type of device. Um, the most obvious one being a smartphone, but then you would have a smart fridge, smart light bulbs, um, smart televisions. Um, and this is linked to other ideas around like the Internet of Things, um, 
often described as loaded media, spatial media, mobile media, pervasive media, ubiquitous media. Um, and the book was just trying to think about, can we think about these devices as a type of technical object? Or can we think more carefully about what these devices are as a, as a type of technical object? And in the book, I try and suggest that being both sensor-enabled and internet-connected, these devices cannot be understood as having a kind of uh, a kind of intentionality, which is a sense of that they they kind of reach out into the world in a particular way, or they can relate to other objects in a, in a particular way. They can sense particular things about other objects. They can't sense everything, but they they can sense certain things. Different objects can sense different things. And that there's also a a kind of protentionality to these objects, these devices as well, which is the sense that they are, whilst they both reach out with their sensors, they are both also kind of anticipating or awaiting certain things because of what their sensors can sense and how that can be translated into data and then analysed. And I, I suggest this kind of intentionality and the, the protentionality of the, of, the, of the smart devices creates these kinds of... Uh, these phases, what I term these phases, where phases are understood as these kinds of overlapping uh, sets of forces in which these entities are, these devices are, are sensing and being sensed by other things and sensing different um, materials like air quality, uh, water quality, sound levels, um, you know, like a LIDAR or radar in, a, in, a, in an autonomous, semi-autonomous vehicle. They're all sensing all different kinds of things. And these, these collections of sense, senses, or this collection of data creates these kinds of phases, these, these overlapping space times. Um, and how space and time then is disclosed through the way these different kinds of entities, different kind of smart device, um, how they can both perturb other things through their sensors and be perturbed by them. So, 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 what would be a, a concrete example then? What, what would be an, an object that you, because uh, you have this object focus uh, in, in your work, um, which is a grounded on a particular philosophical kind of approach? What, 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 what particular objects might be uh, an example then? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a very simple example of uh, of, of the kind of uh, the phase kind of space of a device that I, that I talk about in, in the book um, would be something like a, a Nest, like a Nest cam. Um, these kinds of security, security cameras that you can get for the home now with a, with a kind of uh, camera, they have cameras in them, they are internet connected and they, they sense movement. You can set them up to sense movement within different spaces within the home. Um, and you can say then that the space of the home becomes organized around what those different cameras can sense. And that, that sense then is translated into how the user, when they're away from the home, accesses it, um, accesses the space of the home through, say, for a smartphone app. Um, so, the, so the phase space then, or the, the phases that these, these kinds of uh, smart device produce are specific to what they can sense, um, which then alters how people make sense of the spaces in which these devices are used. So how 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 would that? Um, I have a I have precisely one of those cameras in my apartment in Karlstad. Most of the time, what it senses is clouds moving across the sky in the windows, which set it off continuously. Um, but in one sense, it's it's about alleviating a kind of very real anxiety. So there's a less anxiety on the unknown, and now it's like yeah, you can monitor it continually if you want. Is is it is it really that different in terms of of how? I think um, again, it's down to I think the, the logic. So yeah, okay, on one level, it's about alleviating anxiety, giving the the homeowner uh, a sense of control over their space. Um, but it's but it's also about 
a logic, different kinds of logic, which are operating beyond that in terms of what the device, what the device is doing. Um, so, for instance, with the Nest Home camera, um, I talk about that in terms of a logic of uh, partition, uh, in which space becomes understood through a set of clearly delineated boundaries of what the the the, the camera can and can't see and what it can and can't sense. Um, you know, in terms of how it discriminates. Um, difference in an image but that's not the only kind of logic at play so for example there are other kinds of logics such as I, I talk about envelopment you know where you might have a uh, a kind of a, a running device which clips to the back of your 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 running shorts and um, allows you to measure the your cadence you know uh, as you run the braking the bounce the pelvic rotation pelvic drop um, which basically gives the user a whole bunch of information or data about their bodies which they weren't really perhaps not necessarily aware of before um, but in doing that and giving the user that information you could argue that those the kind of what that device what it's being perturbed by what it can sense now it translates that, translates that sense into data um, it it creates a different kind of spatial experience for the for the user. So with the with a kind of smart running device, you can imagine space appearing as a kind of uh, a stretching and and contracting envelopment. You know where space is the kind of relations of near and far to the user um, shift in terms of not just being about okay, well I'm running towards this tree, or I'm running down down this path, but that I'm actually I'm working within the set of boundaries. So say, for example, I have a um, target goals for each aspect of movement that the sensor is perturbed by. Um, so with the Lumo Run, which is one, which is the example I talk about in the book, um, it, it kind of gives you an ideal form that you're constantly trying to strive towards as, as you run. Um, and I would say that those kinds of device, it becomes organized around sense of near and far and how you're moving become organized around those goals rather than moving towards or away from particular objects in the space. So they, these objects, one, the, 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 in one sense, the key thing they do, which is perhaps the way in which they uh, facilitate, is they, they give us greater control, don't they? In that sense, we, we, we have a greater awareness, we can control whether it's the way in which we run or property or whatever it may be um is there is there an aspect of that which is kind of uh i say not quite liberating but i mean is it having more control in that sense does that give us uh, some kind of freedom or is it something which locks us into as you say a, a, a measurement of something when i've when i've run before when i've run i've i've run Get, guesstimated the distance and the various landmarks. Now I have a, a a voice from my smartphone saying one mile, two mile, three mile. Is there a translation into an overlaying the landscape then with a, a kind of data-led autonomy which takes something away or does it give us a greater... Because I can certainly be more efficient at running. Yeah, I, I think that um, a lot of the critiques and a lot of the academic work on smart technology, smart devices, precisely says that the kind of quantification of um, bodily movement, uh, activity tracking and so on, is just another form of control. You know, so although, although we feel like we're empowered and that we, we are learning more about ourselves and becoming fitter, better subjects, that 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 actually we, we are being controlled in a sense to fit, to fit certain norms uh, and, and, and ideals which can actually be quite inhibiting. Um, and I, am, I understand those critiques, um, but I also try and suggest that these devices don't inherently have to be that way, they don't inherently have to do that, and that actually that they have a kind of excess to them which which can never just be fully reduced to uh, corporate control or the intentions of the people that made the device so so for me I think I try and think about smart 
devices, smart things, as as always exceeding their relations with any one um, entity, and that there's a there's a kind of there is a there's a there's there's a potential there. There's a potential there. So I wouldn't fully agree with people like Stiegler who very much posit the the stupefying aspects of these technologies or the, the fact that they were all just part of this, what Deleuze calls a kind of control society, this kind of disciplining of bodies, um, dynamic forms of, of, of organising space to keep people in and out of certain areas or zones. I'd say actually the, the kind of space times that these devices generate, you know, through the way they can, the way they perturb and are perturbed by other things through their senses, it is actually much more ambiguous than that. And there's an ambigu- ambiguity there. I think that's a very interesting point. And uh, as you say, certainly the, the work around control societies and, and, and Stiegler's work, etc., I think is, is useful. We need to not be sort of naive about technologies in any kind of way. Um, you, you are clear, you say in the book that uh, they are potentially sites of these smart objects and the logics can be sites of uh, contestation and uh, different things. So where do you think this idea of excess is sort of, is that because um, you describe yourself as post-humanist and, I un- I, and again, I kind of un- understand that, that motivation. I mean, again, and I think about uh, your book was 2017, which is like three years ago now. Um, for instance, I mean, I, I personally don't, don't know anyone who's bought a smart fridge or, or anything like that. You know, at one time it was like, yes, your whole house is going to be wired up. And actually people are, don't seem interested in that um, for all sorts of reasons. But that seemed to me lies in, in, in a certain notion of kind of almost sort of human contrariness and, and the excesses in terms of the sort of human qualities. Like, well, I don't, you know, I, I can see that this is invasive and this is predicated on me just, you know, telling me what to buy in my fridge and stuff. I, I'm not going to do that. Where, where, where do you... Because it, cause in one sense, the technology is, is very hardwired now. You can't hack these systems. Um, so they can't be reconfigured. Um, you know, but none of us can do anything with our smartphones apart from just reject them. Um, where, do, where do you see that kind of idea then? If, if, if they can be potentially sites of contestation, where, where do we start that process? I mean, in, in the book, I, I give some examples of, of this, um, you know, for example, in terms of the umbrella movement um, in Hong Kong and how the, they used uh, different, different, forms of, uh, different forms of messaging apps which weren't reliant upon, uh, weren't reliant upon the, the, the big... <clears throat> they, they use a wireless mesh network to deliver messages, right? Um, where the, there's end-to-end encryption of the messages... And the mesh networks allows communication between uh, devices using Bluetooth and wireless signals, but without being connected to a broader internet. Um, so you, you, there's a kind of physicality that you have to be physically present within the range of other phones in order to communicate, you know, because it uses the, the Bluetooth of different phones. And the more people that are using the, the, the app, then it can kind of ping through multiple Bluetooths and send the message further and further. So I, I think... I think there is all kinds of examples of of the potential of of these kinds of technologies to do that, um, and, and and that would be one of them. In terms of your point around oh, but people don't take this stuff up, or you know, the the people get bored of it, or they're not that interested, they feel it's invasive. I I, I get your point, but at the same time, there is just a slow creep of this stuff. Um, it just becomes it just becomes the norm. So when you go to buy something, it's it's just there. You can't buy one without it. You can't buy one without internet connect <laughs> internet connectivity. And I think that's only gonna continue to be the case. You know, there's only you won't if you want a new fridge, it'll probably you know, in ten years it'll probably have some kind of smart functionality or something. Or you know, um 
anything, anything else. It, you won't be able to really opt out unless you go and buy some old second-hand thing. Um, so, and, and I think the the more the more the more widespread they are, the more backgrounded they become, and the more people just accept them without thinking about them. You know, there's there's a real power to uh, familiarity, and and that's just a basic phenomenological point. You know, the the more familiar things become, the more they recede into the background. And when they're in the background, we tend not to question them. So, what what is it about the concept of the interface that led you to the to your book, the interface uh, envelope? What 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 was why was what shifted your your focus there? Face envelope was the that was the first book I wrote, and that book very much came out of my interest in video games and video game design. And um, I was I did quite a bit of work um, on video game design. I worked as a video game design tester um, for for a while as part of my PhD research. I interviewed different video game designers, and for me it, it was the video games. What a lot of work on video games had been about was about um, from a kind of. Uh, game studies perspective was about well okay what are games like most like the ontology of games are they are they a series of rules are they kind of sites of play you know how do we understand them almost on like a formal kind of level and there was also some work on what you might call like the sociology of games and uh, who plays how do they play looking more at the experiential side of, of games less formally but then for me, it was less had really been done. I looked at almost the intersection of, well, how, where do these environments come from? You know, what, what are, how do these environments work, these kind of video game environments? And then that led me to this notion of, of the interface as, as, a, as a key site in which, uh, you know, you, you manipulate things. So the player, that's, that's how the player works with the game. That's how they manipulate entities in the game. So that that's where my interest in the interface came from. What's the what's the cultural significance of games in that computer games in that regard? Then why? Uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, uh, I understand that the significance of just at the very least the kind of economic significance and popularity, but but I mean, I've I've just never in my life played computer games. So, um, you know, if you what is it about that environment that that is does it bring together other processes in society that that seem sort of focused there hmm. I, I think um i think what's interesting about video games is almost they're the um they can be considered as, it can be considered as a kind of barometer uh, for for broader developments in interface design you know so certain interface designs which become normalized or just the just ex, the accepted way of in, engaging with digital devices often have their origins in video games um, and it's in video games that those this kind of skills and techniques for engaging with interfaces becomes developed um, and so yeah that that that's what I would say it's, it's yeah they're the kind of they are the they are the kind of uh, seeding seeding ground for the development of different skills and techniques which then become spread out into other kinds of interface you know so for example on uh, on TV remotes now quite often you will have like a almost like a small joystick a small nub joystick to manipulate through menus and, and you could argue that that's kind of based upon um Kind of D pads and the kinds of joysticks from from video game controllers. Is there a relation? Is there a relationship today or in the past between sort of game design and and military applications in that regard? Joysticks and things that that clearly has some kind of uh, flight mode type idea or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think as we were talking about earlier, so often. Technologies are developed um, in and through military application, or you know, in terms of military um, 
uses. I'm not really, that's not really my area. I'm not, I know Patrick Krogan has, has written a book on, on this, this subject. Well, I think it's called War on Techno Science, I think. Um, which is all about, all about this notion of how video games emerge through, um, earlier military logics, but I'm, I'm not an expert on that, unfortunately. In your idea of uh, that you mentioned in the book of neuro power, and uh, here Malibu's uh, Catherine Malibu's notion of neuroplasticity seems to me to be quite useful to think about where we are today. Um, how do you see this in relation to what's been described as cognitive capitalism? Could you just say something about those the di- those different as different processes and aspects? Yeah, so in the, in the book, um, I'm interested in, in neuropower, um, really in terms of uh, what Stiegler calls psychopower as well. There's, so there's this different a range of different thinkers who are trying to, trying to suggest that there's some kind of fundamental relationship between digital technologies and the brain and that digital technologies are kind of operating on a, um, a kind of basic neurological level somehow. And what I was interested in was trying to develop a way for understanding how we can talk about the specificity of that kind of what might be called a kind of direct relation between the body and the interface or the body-brain interface connection. Um, And for me, it was trying to use Stiegler's ideas, use Warren Niedrich's ideas, um, use Malibu's ideas to to demonstrate how this kind of neuropower or what I call uh, envelope power is about the way in which entities and environments are modulated to make space and time appear in different ways in order to organize the the attention of the user around different uh, units of space and time. Um, so the, uh, the example I give in the book is of, uh, well, I give lots of different examples in the book, but you know, you might think about a gun a gun in a video game like Battlefield or Call of Duty. Now that gun is animated and modelled in such a way as to organise the perception of the user. Um, so for example, and I suggest that all entities in video game environments have both what I call a resolution uh, and a technicity, with resolution referring to how video games appear, oh, sorry, how entities in video games appear as distinct or autonomous types of things spatially and technicity in terms of how they organize um, a sense of the present for the user. So, for example, when you're firing a gun in a, in a game like um, Call of Duty, it will animate in a certain way. Uh, the bullets will make a certain sound. The, 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 when you reload, the reload animation will take a certain length of time. And depending on what you do, the animation of the reload will change. And that's just one entity which operates to kind of focus the user's perception on the present and keep them in this kind of envelope, this spatio-temporal envelope in which they're not thinking too far into the future and they're not too thinking too, they don't have to think too much about the past either. And it's in this kind of envelope zone in which, um, which is powerful because that's where game designers want players to be because that keeps them playing, that keeps them engaged, that keeps them buying downloadable content for the game, that keeps them buying the um, the sequel of the game, you know, all of these kinds of things. So it's about how does how does uh, how does power operate on a very kind of embodied and uh, specific level in relation to particular entities in a, in a video game environment. So is this idea of the envelope essentially? Uh, uh, a contained affective space is that the idea that you maintain something within that and as you say past and future is then just lost or sort of su- submerged into that yeah so it's it's about you could say that the interface envelope is trying to manipulate the uh, this kind of spatio-temporal uh, consciousness of human beings you could argue and you know, as humans, we do have we we are experiences temporally and spatially structured. So we tend to, we consider ourselves to experience the present moment and the future somewhere out in front of us. 
and the past behind us. And we're always kind of moving, yeah? So the now is always changing. But then we're always thinking back to past nows. Well, not always, but we can think back to past nows and we're anticipating future moments. Like, what am I going to do in five minutes? What am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do next week? And the interface envelope is about producing environments which try to attempt to manipulate that spatio-temporal structure of experience um, within pathways that are beneficial for the designers of the games. You know, they want they want to, and I just term that very simply, uh, a capturing and holding of attention. So if you you can capture and hold attention by manipulating the spatio-temporal structure of experience, and you do that by producing these these different kinds of interface envelope, where you try to create space times in which you're not thinking too far ahead and you don't have to keep thinking think back too far either because if you're thinking too far ahead all the time you might become frustrated if you're thinking too far back all the time you might become bored yeah it's trying to create this zone of intensity which you're kind of more or less focused on a on a small loop of time a small loop of space time it might be a 10 seconds it might be 20 seconds it might be a minute um but that's that's one way in which these games can be powerful so I, I can see that they, um, in that sense, they they fit with that idea of a control society. They're, they're, they're modulating us and holding us, as you say, in terms of attention. Um, computer games, and again, you know, my knowledge is, is limited, but computer games s- seem about a fairly... They're, they're, they're at least defined by some notion of, of repetition of something whatever that may be. Uh, and I know there's a kind of quite di- diversity of games and things. So, but I, I, I think about my research. I, I, at the moment, I'm reaching, researching things around uh, uh, television series and streaming in relation to that. And, and in one sense, what you have there is, again, a certain notion of an envelope. Certainly, you have your attention fixed on something. And... Again, on one end of the spectrum, you can look at the affordances of of Netflix and other things which encourage this, you know, compulsion to binge and to hit the next episode, next episode and so on. But to me, at the other end of the spectrum, and this is where I'm I'm trying to work with the things around, around Stiegler and his sort of reading of Adorno and culture industries, where... where within certain... TV series, uh, first of all, they build in delays, like they are, they maintain weekly episodes, although afterwards you can presumably, in, you can watch all of them in one go, but um, they seem to want to hold on to a notion of kind of reflection in the very nature of something like a fictional world of a TV series, whether that's Westworld or anything else, which is at the very least on the surface posing philosophical questions about human non-human choice desire different things that seems to me to be actually something worth engaging with because it's it, it it's it's not just repetition of consumption but although it's that's part of it but it 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 has some notion of of thinking within that is that the kind of thing that you see as a potential then within games or anything else i mean i think I, I it's important that i'm clear that i i have no problems with games you know um and actually some of my reading of stiegler is to suggest that actually it's not just a simple case of um you know this kind of attention deficit that, that, that these games these digital technologies are creating attention deficit and are kind of breaking down our ability to deal with more complex ideas um I don't. I don't necessarily believe that. Um, so I. I would kind of actually push back a little bit because a lot of games, in order to construct that interface envelope, the designers require the players to develop all kinds of very sophisticated somatic kinds of skills and knowledges. So it's not just a case of um, skilling up versus dumbing down or. You know, uh, games are bad because they create attention deficit, whereas reading is good because it creates these kinds of longer term ways of thinking. Um, I, I, I just don't necessarily, I don't necessarily believe that. It's, a, it's about that question of modulation. 
you know, what is being modulated and how is it being modulated. Um, so thinking about things like, you know, Netflix and streaming, and I've never really engaged with this before, but it wouldn't just be about the relations between the temporal relations between the shows or the interface for me. It would be about the actual entities within the show, you know, where the show isn't just a representation or a, a, a series of images, but it, it's a real set of entities. Um, and this, this comes from my own interest in uh, speculative realism and my own reading of uh, speculative realist thinkers alongside people like Stiegler and Malibu. Uh, and and it, would just be, it would just be to take seriously all the entities that make up these different... Um, these different mediums, these different media, uh, and, and try not to introduce a too much of a strong distinction between uh, media and medium or um, content and form or something like this. Okay, good. Well, listen, thank you very much. Um, just my final question then uh, in that regard. Are there particular TV series at the moment that you watch, Do you recommend for... I mean, obviously, something like Westworld is, is predicated on particular ideas around technology and, and different things and consciousness. Uh, are, there, are there shows that you like, shall we say? Um, <laughs> none that, have, that kind of follow through on that, uh, on these kind of societal themes, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't watch Westworld. I don't really watch... I actually stay away from those kind of shows. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm sure they have all kinds of interesting things to say. I'm, I'm sure they can be very powerful ways of, you know, giving audiences an opportunity to think about different things they might not. Um, but but I, I don't personally watch those kind of shows, unfortunately. Um, I think... I, I I have to say I, I do really like that Netflix show A Better Call Saul. Um, I don't know if you know that show. Um, yeah, it's kind of breaking the the prequel to Breaking Bad. Um, I, I I just really love the attention to detail in that show, and this actually might come back to my own interest a little bit. It's just the way in which uh, like non-human entities and seemingly very minor things. Play, play a really important part in the show um, and it's not just a matter of characters doing things but it's it's how characters uh, become caught up in different situations and and how certain entities show up again and again in the in the show so yeah that's my <laughs> that's my escape from media absolutely I mean I think I mean it's been written about as well as as, as uh focused on i mean Brett, that breaking bad world that their their focus on objects and the way that they track them through these over periods and, and labyrinths and things is very very kind of impressive for engaging in that way so i, I see that point okay well thank you again james well, thanks so much I, I really appreciate you having me and uh thank you uh, to everyone at carlstad as well for inviting me along to, to speak about my work uh, thank you